Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about stuff. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And I believe today Sarah is going to go first. I'm excited because I'm going to talk about where computer code goes. <gasps> I think this is a really cool topic and not something we always talk about. So I'll go right into what I'm going to talk about. So it's kind of hard to talk about where computer code goes because it's so random. Like, you don't ever think about it. You don't ever think about where computer code goes. I've wondered that many times. Yeah. I've never really looked up an answer. <laughs> and I'm married to a software developer. <laughs> so computers process binary symbols. And binary symbols are really just symbols that have two values. And often we talk about ones and zeros as the two values, but they can be true and false off and on. And binary code is really just a way to encode information using only two possible symbols like one and zero, like I mentioned. Um, for example, Morse code is a binary, oh, yeah. is a binary system. And you can even make your own binary system by with a friend by taking flashlights or lights and agreeing on like the you can make up your own binary system with a friend by taking flashlights and, and agreeing on what the flashes of light mean. So on and on means one thing, off means another, just like Morse code. So in computers, binary code is grouped into binary digits called bits, groups of eight digits, so eight bits equals a byte. And modern computers contain millions and billions of transistors, which are just microscopic switches which are used to store information and compute. Transistors are used to store bits. So because it has so many billions of transistors, that means there are many, many possible combinations of bytes. So there are lots of combinations of information that you can um, store in a computer. And a, com a computer comes out of the factory understanding a specific binary language. So for an Intel computer, that this is interesting. For an Intel computer, that language is specified in a huge electronic document that you can actually download. It's 4,800 pages. Oh my God. Yeah, it's a huge, huge document. So you can actually download the document that has the language specified for the Intel chips. I'm not gonna do that. But. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> So the question would be then, why do we need a programming language if we have an almost 5,000 page manual of how an Intel machine works? Can't we just read every page of the manual and then write binary code by hand? I feel like that would take an awful long time. It's, no, we shouldn't do that. It's terrible. Okay. That's too much. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> it's so huge. So thousands of different programming languages make it possible for us to create computer software apps and programs. So code allows us to easily read and write and understand the actions we want our programs to take without having to write bi binary code by hand, which is nice because that would be really long. Yeah, and oh, it would be so easy to get lost. Hand cramps. How many, how many yays and nays can you? Can you write out? 
Put simply, a programming or coding language is just a set of syntax rules that defines how the code should be written and formatted. The easiest, the earliest computers were programmed manually by hand with switches. So it'd be on and off. Um, and that makes sense going back to the transistors. Exactly. It's kind of just like the number of transistors is scaled up. Mm-hmm. Not really a different way to do things. It's just a different scale. And only simple programs were possible then because it's a lot of switches. Yeah. <laughs> so debugging that. That would be, be so nice. irritating. It'd be like Christmas lights. <laughs> <laughs> Which one's the problem bulb? <laughs> and just imagine the earliest computers like basically took up entire rooms. Mm-hmm. So it'd be completely insane. So in the 1950s to the 1960s, the most common way to to program computers was with assembly language. language, And that was when languages came in. Assembly language is a low-level language. It's a programming language that uses a simple syntax of abbreviated words and numbers to directly represent the computer instructions that should be executed. The assembler Mm -hmm. took the assembly file you wrote and produced a new file into machine language, which is translating it into machine language that are the set of binary instructions for your CPU. So since all CPUs are different, that would need to translate into the binary instructions for that specific CPU. Okay. So why don't we still use assembly language like that? I bet you my husband would know, but I don't. So I'd love to hear more. Well, it's really tedious to write (laughs) large programs. And um, it's not portable, which means that you can't port it over to a different type of processor. You can't reuse your code. So with assembly, you're only writing to the flavor of computer CPU. Okay. Yeah. So it's really not portable, which is a pain in the butt. So we're going to get into compilers. like uh, So compiling languages like C and C++, they actually have compilers that translate over to machine language. And so you type the text into a text editor and then you compile it. So the compiler translates to machine code, which the hardware chip can directly interpret. So if you make a mistake, a syntactical mistake like in your code, it will halt the compiler and it will be sad and you'll have to fix it. And it's very irritating. (laughs) (laughs) So modern compilers parse the file according to the syntax of the language you use to program, then according to the code in the program, translates the concepts from their textual representation into machine language. It's similar to translating a language. And I think this is probably the coolest thing about computer languages is that we figured out how to talk to computers and translate from English-ish English-ish language over into what the computer can understand. And I think that's awesome. People are interesting creatures. We are. We Let me talk to you, Invention. Wait, I got to figure out how to talk to you. I'm going to figure out 50 different ways to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> so we're so in love with our own, with talking that we want to talk to computers now. Mm-hmm. Yep. I want to talk to a thing. 
So that gets us into interpreted languages, and interpreted languages are more modern. Um, interpreted languages are like Java's. You've heard of Java Runtime. Everybody has yes. that stupid pop-up that comes up. Is like <laughs> Always you, broken with the little puzzle piece. <laughs> I'm always broken. Please update me. No, I don't want to. So Python, Java, and JavaScript, Ruby, and Perl. There are other ones. Those are just the ones off the top of my head. These languages have a compiler, but the compiler's result is not machine code. It is an intermediate pro format, just like I said, the Java runtime. That's the intermediate format. And the cool thing about interpreted, interpreted programming languages is that you can, using the programming language development tools, you can type into the interpreter and it will, it, since the interpreter reads it line by line, you can type and then it will execute the command. So you don't have to write this huge text file of your code. It's pretty cool. Every modern browser has a JavaScript interpreter built into it. So you can mm -hmm. just write JavaScript and it will execute it. It's very cool. So how is that working? So depending on how the interpreter is written, it like I said, real-time parses and translate the codes and then executes it. So if you're old enough to remember computers from the 70s and 80s, which I am, but I wasn't really into computers when I was a little kid. I liked my Nintendo and that was about it. And yeah. Like, you might remember BASIC. And BASIC itself was an interpreted language. Okay. So yeah, you could type your command and then it would automatically execute it. So where does computer code go? Into transistors. <laughs> <laughs> Into transistors is the right is the but it's right got a few answer. Steps it's that. got a few steps. Again, we're going to bring up like translating language, talking to machines, which again is very cool. So code gets translated either by a compiler or an interpreter and executed into the computer. Those millions and billions of transistors pulse and blink into the CPU, which triggers output lines, which are connected to things like your video card, so that the text your program was told to print can be seen by your someone else's eyeballs. That's amazing. I know. I think it's cool. And also in a physics sense, some of your code gets turned into heat. So since your code has to run on the computer, mm -hmm. then your computer, the CPU is running and getting hot. So it's expelling heat. So that's why if there's a big put, there's a big push right now in mobile platforms to be conscientious of energy usage in code. That makes sense. Yeah. Energy efficiency mm -hmm. in code is a big thing. That's really interesting. That's another facet. Connecting it to the real world in a completely different, almost uncorrelated way. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And my husband was telling me about something called bit rot. I've only heard this a few times. And the code itself is not actually rotting. It's you go back. It's like uh, as a writer, I will go back and see what I've written and be like, wow, that's terrible. Why did I write that? <laughs> the same happens with code. You can go back to see what you've written and the code itself you're like what what this doesn't even work right anymore this every we've introduced all these bits of program that is making this clunky and break mm -hmm. so that's called bit rot so in kind of an entropy sense your code kind of rots over time only because of human activity well and i'm thinking about 
things like Netscape or Internet Explorer and their, <laughs> their compatibility with certain technologies just not happening and mm-hmm. just not working anymore. Mm-hmm. Would that be an example of BitRot? Because the IE framework, which has now been completely abandoned, uh, like this laptop right here has no Internet Explorer on it. Exploder uh, is what yeah. everybody else calls it. <laughs> so because it wasn't keeping up with anything at all uh, in terms of its ability to execute what internet platforms were sending it, is that it or something different? Yes, I would say that is a very good example of BitRot. Okay. It's something that is not... It's usable still, but you look at it and you're like, why did we do this this way? It's like a wrestling match. That's what I think of when I think <laughs> of like trying to get something done on a computer when it's not up to date or isn't compatible. It's just trickery. You're just tricking the machine into doing <laughs> what you need to do that day. Exactly. It's a bit rot. And it's all our fault, too. If we Mm -hmm. would just stop writing junk on top of other junk and building a house of cards and out of programs, maybe it wouldn't do it that. (laughs) But, you know, that's how some things have to be written and built. Mm -hmm. Neat. That was a really good explanation. I hope so. I tried. I have uh, been very curious about that. Like, I'm on a computer. I'm like, how does this work? How do I get this much information from this little box? It's cool, isn't it? It is. It's millions and billions of little transistors mm-hmm. blinking and pulsing. Now recording our podcast. Now recording our podcast. And now playing our podcast so you can listen to it. And some of it is going into the CPU and the output is uh, through the video card and onto the screen so that we can see our voices recording that's exciting very meta it is it's kind of a meta discussion Mm -hmm. and then of course the microphones are input devices so they're going into the computer and the sound card doing blinky blinkies and pulsy pulsies (laughs) into the cpu and then we get to see the output into the video card like i said yeah now we're both staring at our (laughs) we're staring at the laptop (laughs) <laughs> oh, I can see where I laugh. That's funny. Oh, yeah, it's obvious where we laugh. <laughs> Every time I laugh now, I'm going to stare at it. So I actually, this is tangentially related because I am talking about where itchiness goes when you are, you know, when you treat itchiness by either scratching it or using an antihistamine or fixing your dry skin, stuff like that. And I guess, fortunately, we're getting closer to an answer to that question. But unfortunately, as I looked into it, we don't really know yet definitively. (laughs) So the answer is, here's some thoughts. (laughs) But itching has was defined how many years ago It was like 300 and some odd years ago as an unpleasant sensation of the skin that provokes the urge to scratch. It's a feature of a lot of skin diseases and also coming into contact with things that are physically irritating. And the input, it's itchiness seems to be solely a function of skin. 
So we can have itchy skin inside our mouths or inside our ears or on our arms or, you know, wherever there's skin, but we don't tend to have itchiness in our intestines or in our lungs. We may have discomfort, we may have pain, but we don't tend to have itchiness. There's a great deal of evidence, although not a specific definitive primate model of evidence, but there's a lot of mouse model evidence and then a lot of just sort of looking at human studies and other primate studies and saying, yeah, it's probably the case, but we're not quite to the point of saying, yes, definitely, that itching runs on a different set of nerves than pain. Mm -hmm. And... I mentioned scratching and that itching tends to be defined as an urge to scratch. And so Hmm. scratching may do one of two things. It may trigger pain nerves. So you're trading off a set of sensations, itch sensation for pain sensation. And then that switches the nerves that are firing in your brain. So you're no longer paying attention to the itch sensation. Or it may just be the urge to scratch tends to result in dislodging an irritant. You're moving your wool sleeve away from your arm and then scratching it. Oh, I hate wool clothing. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, our last episode was about mothballs. So feel free to listen to that. It talks (laughs) about wool clothing and what to do instead of mothballs. Yeah, please don't use mothballs. Ooh, they're gnarly. That's the TLDR of it. Don't use mothballs. Yeah, it's, ooh, they, they go into the air and they're toxic. That's... Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so there's not, you know, because we don't have necessarily a definitive model of itching and why itchiness is what it is and where it goes, there's a lot of thoughts about scratching and things like that, but... What's really interesting, and I'm going to just sort of talk about where the research is going, is the research is headed toward itchiness being classified as a disease. What? Exactly. It sounds odd, but it's something socially that we don't tend to talk about because it can be kind of embarrassing. Mm. But I have here a list of different dermatologic disorders and then different... I know, and I, I am, as I'm talking about this, your listeners may be scratching. Sarah scra- just scratched her arm. I'm, I'm itchy thinking about itching. That's called spontaneous itchiness. That's a psychological reaction to discussing itchiness. And that's actually a component of our understanding that it is most likely a separate nervous path or neural pathway than pain because it's such a hair trigger. You don't tend to feel pain when someone says, oh, I have a pain in my ear. You might feel sympathetic pain if they go into describing it, but I just am mentioning itchiness or I was reading about itchiness and getting itchy and my skin was going, ugh. So that's another piece of evidence that is on different neural pathways. Yeah, my entire back is just now. Yeah. I don't know why. It's because I'm talking about it. <laughs> That's spontaneous. So it's all in your head. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still a feeling that you have, even if it's just psychological. So that's right. 
it can be a component of psychological disorders like obsessive compulsive disorder, mm-hmm. restless leg syndrome, anxiety disorders, even depression. So those would be considered chronic itching. Any itchiness symptom that lasts more than six weeks is considered chronic. Acute would be something like getting poison ivy and being itchy or a bug bite or wearing a wool sweater and being allergic to it. So those would be acute. Chronic itching can be caused by, and I'm just going to read this list because it's so long, dermatitis herpetiformis, dermatomyositis, myositis, sorry, pemphigoid, Sjogren syndrome, Derrier's disease, Haley-Haley disease, ichthyoses, Sjogren-Larsen syndrome, arthropod reactions, that's a bug bite, dermatophytosis, sunburn, folliculitis, irritated hair follicles, also ingrown hairs, impetigo and other bacterial infections, insect bites. So I guess arthropod reactions would be a different thing from an insect bite, maybe. Chigger bites? Yeah. Are they arthropods? Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Pediculosis, scabies, viral infections, osteostosis, which is dry skin, including just aging will dry your skin out. So you just are going to This gonna is get, true. You're just going to get itchier as you age. This is true. Atopic eczema, contact dermatitis, which, fun story, I have a little wound and I put a Band-Aid on it and turns out I'm allergic to the Band-Aid adhesive. Yep. It's a thing. <laughs> and I did that yesterday as I was researching this. Oh, how awful. <laughs> I was like, great, I have a personal oh, example. Oh, the synchronicity of the universe. Mm-hmm. Invisible dermatoses. So you can actually have itchiness symptoms with no visible component, but they can be serious issues. Mm-hmm. Cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Ugh. Yeah, cutaneous B-cell lymphoma. Ugh. Le- leukemia. Pemphigoid gestationitis, polymorphic eruption of pregnancy. That's a rash you get systemically when you're pregnant. You just you look like you have the measles, but you don't. Oh, how awful. Yeah. As if pregnancy wasn't already irritating enough. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's systemic causes, including renal failure, diabetes, mm-hmm. hyperthyroidism, hypothyroidism, liver disease, malabsorption, perimenopausal, so you just get itchier as your hormones change, which makes some sense. Hemantheosis, which is a, I believe that's a parasite. HIV infection, parasitosis, Hodgkin's disease, iron deficiency, leukemia, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, multiple myeloma, plastomacytoma, polycythemia rubrivera, carcinoid syndrome, solid tumors of the cervix, prostate, or colon, purchase gravidum, which is just itchiness during pregnancy. And then neurological diseases, because if you have a tumor or an abscess or sclerosis of neural pathways that are connected to itchy nerves, you're going to feel itchy. Yeah, I, I can see that why that would be a thing. And then psychiatric disorders. So that's a huge list of causes of itchiness. <laughs> we are itchy critters. <laughs> Well, we're covered in skin. We are covered thankfully. in skin. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and so there's a list of things that can stop itchiness. 
Scratching actually really isn't considered to be part of that list. And that's because scratching can cause secondary Mm -hmm. issues like wounds to the skin, thickening of the skin, which thickened skin is often itchy. So scratching itchy skin can thicken it, which can make it itchy. Mm -hmm. It's very cyclical. And also spreading whatever caused the dermatitis in the first place, like poison ivy. You really shouldn't scratch poison ivy. It will spread it. Even though you really want to. Oh, yeah. Well, and you mentioned chigger bites. I think there's no more satisfying sensation in the world than scratching a chigger bite, but it makes them last a lot longer. If you don't scratch them, they do go away a lot quicker, in my experience. And then you can get the secondary bacterial infection from your whatever junk is under your nails, and you're scratching your chigger bites, and you have open wounds, and... It's bad news, bears. Yeah. Just spray yourself down with Benadryl if you can. Yeah. Or uh, lidocaine works, too. Oh, okay. You can get lidocaine-containing creams specifically for the skin. Please don't use non-dermatological lidocaine. Don't put a fentanyl patch on your chigger bites. Please don't do that. Don't do that. That doesn't sound like a good idea at no. all. Well, you know, people, they try things. I mean, they we do. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, cooler temperatures can help a lot, particularly with irritated skin. So cool compresses, cool baths, a cooler environment, and lotions with things like calamine, primoxine, menthol, or camphor. So all of these goals, all the, the goals are twofold for stopping itching. So making itching go away. One is to treat the nerves at the skin where mm-hmm. they're causing your problem, or to treat that enormous list of issues that I just read to you that could cause itching. And it's pretty important to try both because if you're so uncomfortable that you're itching and itching and itching, but you have lymphoma, if you don't treat the lymphoma, you're still going to be itchy. But scratching or, you know, trying to just power through itchiness, it's not going to go away until the lymphoma goes away. But you're going to be really uncomfortable particularly Mm -hmm. if you're going through some sort of treatment like chemotherapy because that dries out your skin. Antihistamines are usable in about 30%, usable in about 30% of itchiness situations because so histamines are a chemical substance your body releases in response to some kind of irritation. Mm -hmm. Allergies Mm -hmm. and allergic reactions are the most well-known of histamine reactions. And so an antihistamine blocks histamines from being received by your cells. And so the histamines don't mediate slash trigger further itchiness. But that's only about 30% of sort of itchiness reasons. And it can be, so the sedating antihistamines tend to be a little more effective than the anti-sedating or non-sedating antihistamines. So if you want something effective, but you're going to end up being sedated, that might not practically work for you or for me. There have been times where I've definitely not taken Benadryl because I need to be awake. I need to be functional. And so I'm just itchy and functional instead of asleep and not itchy. Did I tell you about the time I got chiggers out out here on the property and I sprayed myself down with Benadryl and took Benadryl and I was out for like six or eight hours because I didn't realize how much Benadryl I had taken and would be absorbed in my skin. So lesson learned, 
you absorb Benadryl through your skin and it can make you sleepy. Good to know. <laughs> and I mean, it can be a handy way to go to sleep if you're having trouble. It's not a. It's not meant as a sleep aid. So yeah. It's not something you should do chronically, but. Yeah, maybe not in the morning. Spray it on you. No. Do something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was looking at a John Hopkins health review of why do we itch and it was talking about itch itchiness research and how pain research has had a huge body of work done on it deservedly pain matters but itchiness not so much and itchiness is sort of the less glamorous cousin to pain because it's seriously irritating. It, it really negatively impacts people's lives if they have chronic itchiness. A lot of people find it embarrassing. Because one of the things that we do tend to have a knee-jerk reaction is if someone has a rash or something like that, it's our immediate reaction to be a little repulsed. Because it's, you know, it's our little lizard brain in the back of our head telling us, don't get sick. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, and it's not compassionate and it's not kind but it is a thought process that a lot of people have off the bat and so people become embarrassed and then treating itchiness becomes something that's difficult to ask for it's something that people think is silly to research it's something that's considered not profitable so a lot of times funding for research won't be there but there's been a huge amount of effort to change that there are over 200 researchers currently focused on the issue. So that's a huge uptick recently, which is good. So if everyone itches, but nobody talks about being itchy, it seems like there would be a lot of money in itchiness. You would think. Yeah. But then we could also get into whether or not itchiness treatments are, say, addictive. Oh, okay. They're not. <laughs> <laughs> and... There's also, you know, at this point, it's not entirely known what steps there are between your skin and your brain. They need to find the nerves that go between your skin and your brain for itchiness. So, yeah, that's kind of where it goes. It goes from your skin to your brain. And then once you either treat what's causing the skin to itch or what's causing the systemic reaction that's triggering itchy nerve cells then it stops. I'm so itchy. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Like I keep scratching my, for some reason, this arm is very, very worried about talking about itching. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm sure that I have made people a little scratchy. I apologize. Especially since the answer to this is basically like, "Mm, we're not entirely sure. (laughs) (laughs) There was such a long list, like, I don't think we should Google any of those. I think that the hypochondriacs in the listener audience should not Google any of those because you might think you have it. (laughs) It's organ failure, cancer, and serious skin issues. And um, hormones we mentioned. Yes. And pregnancy, probably hormones. Yep. Oh, uh, by the way, if you're pregnant and your palms and the soles of your feet are very itchy, please contact your obstetrician. That might be a liver problem. Oh, good to know. I'm not a doctor. but And if you're not pregnant and your palms and your feet are very itchy, go ahead and contact a doctor because it might be a liver problem. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I, I have one more thing to add is that because 
itchiness is specifically a skin thing. Mm -hmm. There's a very substantial placebo effect for people applying things on skin and saying, oh, I feel better. Like that's something that people really respond to regardless of it being effective or not. And so it makes it difficult to truly understand what any topical applications for chronic itchiness are actually doing. And that actually speaks a lot to the perceived efficacy of things like essential oils Mm -hmm. and those weird foot patches that you put on the bottom of your feet and they turn black and then you've sucked toxins out. Aren't your feet just dirty? It's just something that oxidizes. It's that's it's pure quackery. Oh, okay. It's not even like getting anything off of your feet. It's just turning black. I feel like we should do a show on quackery. That would be a good one. Yeah, I really enjoy quackery cures. Like I'm into like old pharmacy bottles and old old um cure cures and treatments mm-hmm. for things. I just did air quotes like you like you do. <laughs> I'm doing air quotes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, quackery is an interesting subset of Western medicine. And probably all medicine. I don't know. We might be able to find out if we look into Mm -hmm. quackery. (laughs) I do have a reuse project. Yay! Because I was like, oh no, I don't have one. (laughs) (laughs) So... Nick and I have been trying to eat more salads, mm-hmm. and so we have been occasionally ordering salads out and about and mm-hmm. eating them at home, which results in a lot of single-use plastic, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But the specifically the Panera salad bowls are excellent as little planters. Oh, cool. Because they are a very nice depth and width, so they're very stable. They're easy to poke little holes in and in the bottom. I have two plants right now in a Panera salad bowl. They're attractively designed. So, you know, it's not like I've got garbage sitting out with plants. (laughs) (laughs) More power to you, you know. Yeah, I mean. You do you. (laughs) You can do whatever you want. Wally is my favorite Disney character of all time, and he kept planting garbage. I got, and he then saved humanity, so. Oh, I didn't make that connection until just now. I really love Wally, and I'm. Keeping, I do too. It's one of my favorite movies. I'm keeping a plant in what a lot of people consider garbage. <laughs> I'm basically a trash robot. <laughs> do we need a compiler to translate into machine language for you? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and they've got a very nice lip, so you can make hanging planters out of them unfortunately i have a two-year-old so a hanging planter is a cradle and she wants to rock the plants in the cradle and also take the plants out of the cradle and put the plants in the cradle and it's not good for the plants (laughs) (laughs) that's so cute though it's very sweet she is invested in the plants and their cradle maybe it should be like you should have a lower one just for her and you could put a doll in it i have a bag of dolls actually she would love that. Yeah. <laughs> so takeout containers can make excellent planters. That's such a good idea. Mm-hmm. So that's Where Does It Go? Awesome. You thank can, you. you. Thank you. You can find us on com, And we are currently hosted at most podcast places. Google Podcasts is misbehaving as of this episode, but hopefully it will be improved soon. 